Alrighty, cool. Let's crack a lackin'. So today, we'll jump into the second volume of the history of sexuality. So this is the use of pleasure. Rather enigmatic text, especially if we consider it in relation to the first volume. So while it might not be a totally popular opinion to posit um, vast differences between this book and the first uh, volume of the history of sexuality, um, I believe there are some pretty fundamental differences. The, I, one of the problems, I think, is that most people don't actually read the second or third volumes. They just, you know, read the first chapter of the first one and think, there, I know what's going on here. And they cherry-pick that. Which, actually, I'm speaking about that in too much of a negative tone. It, it, there's virtually nothing wrong with doing that. But there are different ideas that come up in the other ones. Uh, that are important to consider, especially how Foucault traces this, um, w what are essentially ascetic ideals, so A-S-C-E-T-I-C, -E uh, ascetic ideals, which he takes from, I think, um, most prominently from Nietzsche in the genealogy of morality. So ascetic ideals are kind of like uh, ideals placed on the human to control them, right? So this is to kind of posit against licentiousness, Posit against, um, I guess, um, promiscuity in favor of a very regimented kind of puritanical existence uh, so that the human can be an effective <coughs> agent in that world. So this term has a very long history all the way back to Aristotle, obviously, when Aristotle is speaking specifically about how one can attain a degree of virtue or attain virtue by establishing or um, achieving a sort of uh, position what he, of the mean, so the middle or the kind of um, average, in order to be a properly well-rounded individual. So now we're, you know, this volume kind of considers this this idea of asceticism, um, which stands opposed to some of the ideas he puts forth in the first volume. So in the first volume, Foucault's interested in the way that a kind of subjectivity emerges in the 17th, 18th centuries, and he gives this uh, kind of the most attention uh, toward the end when humans are turned into populations and subjects are kind of formulated within those populations. And he comes to kind of consider that in relation to a broader historical context to kind of backpedal a bit and say, well, actually, we see the roots of this much, much earlier, all the way back to uh, the Greeks with Aristotle and, and Plato as well, to just name a few. And then the third volume, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, obviously, looks back at the Greeks, Greeks once more, my God, sorry, to consider um, on-arrow criticism or the study of dreams in that period. So at the beginning of this book, Foucault kind of reiterates or re, um, I guess reestablishes what he had done in the first volume. So he says that, he says, what I planned, therefore, was a history of the experience of sexuality, where experience is understood as the cor correlation between fields of knowledge, types of normativity, and forms of subjectivity in particular culture. So this idea, he says, was opposed to the notion that sexuality was conceived of as a constant. And instead, he, he wanted to think of it as a kind of historically singular phenomenon that emerges at a specific point. So sexuality is not a universal, historically or, or temporally or culturally in, in any way. 
So what he says then is to speak of a, of a sexuality as a historically singular experience also presuppose the availability of tools capable of analyzing the peculiar characteristics and interrelations of the three axes that constitute it. And the three are, number one, the formation of sciences, or in brackets, savoir, which is kind of like knowledge, uh, that refer to it. Number two, the systems of power that regulate its practice. And number three, the forms within which individuals are able and obliged, or are obliged, to recognize themselves as subjects of this sexuality. So what this all came down to for Foucault was another problem, or he came to face another problem, and that was, in his mind, how can we kind of analyze this in terms of kind of genealogical excavation unless we have uh, an understanding of this emer emergence of a subject or a subject of desire, as he says it, which was a, a rather odd thing for him to encounter, because in order to evaluate sexuality as such, as being comprised of uh, subjects who desire, Foucault was like, wow, I need to come up with a whole kind of theoretical schematic to understand this, this subject in here. Because I can't understand the field or understand the whole enterprise unless I understand all the constitutive components that make it up. So then he says that this volume, The Use of Pleasure, uh, is devoted then to the manner in which sexual activity was problematized by philosophers and doctors as far as, or as far back as the classical Greek culture of the 4th century BC. And then he says what the care of the self and the confessions of the flesh, the just only just released fourth volume, which I hope to do here at some point. Um, I could translate the thing first. So moving into the second kind of section here, he says that looking back at the Greeks, to him, it doesn't seem as though they were particularly interested in things like the nature of the sexual act, monogamous fidelity, homosexual relations, chastity. Rather, they were, ra they were indifferent to such things. Now, this kind of classical attitude of the Greeks uh, is it's not really satisfactory for Foucault because he says that we can just look at, you know, any text and he takes... Uh, for instance, the what he calls the first great Christian text devoted to sexual practice and married life, chapter 10 of book 2 of the Pedagogue by Clement of Alexandria, uh, which was, which already notes, he says, a certain association of sexual activity with evil, along with the rule of procreative monogamy, a condemnation of relations between individuals of the same sex, and a glorification of self-restraint. So it doesn't seem as though, and he's kind of building up to this, that these institutions did not simply develop in, you know, the 18th through 19th centuries, which I think how many people um, who read, you know, either just the first volume or parts of the first volume would say that, like, homophobia was just something that emerged uh, recently. While there perhaps wasn't a term for it, the there was a, still, a, like, a cultural disdain for uh, same-sex relations, or at least a negative attitude towards it. Now, from person to person, right, as we might remember from the Republic, um, Plato doesn't totally do away with it. Like, he says that there's some value to be had with um, citizen men having uh, sexual relations with, with younger boys, and that fosters some kind of, like, um, community bond or, um, or a national bond. Uh, but that, you know, b between thinkers, there were variations, and Foucault was interested in that, suggesting that it's not totally one or the other, but that we have to consider how these um, sorts of 
I guess, laws or rules imposed on sexuality have a very long history all the way back to the Greeks. And moreover, how these um, anxieties about sexuality came to influence the way that the Christian, Christian doctrine would have it. So he says that there are four main, or what he considers four main pieces of evidence. They are, number one, the expression of a fear. Number two, a model of conduct. Number three, the image of a stigmatized attitude. And four, an example of abstinence. So as we might be able to glean from this before we move into each individual one, that they all kind of demonstrate or at least um, make um, have some clear affinity with contemporary kind of conservative discourse around sexuality. Certainly the expression of a fear, if you're, you know, sexuality is not something to be talked about. Uh, number two, a model of conduct, if it is going to be conducted, like it has to, you know, heterosexual relations in a bed, uh, monogamous relations, however. Uh, number three, the image of a stigmatized attitude, which, you know, insert any marginalized um, sexual minority here, and, and there you have that. And then four, an example of abstinence, which I think in a sense we can consider a kind of Protestant uh, puritanical uh, being fitting into that category. How, you know, and oh god, this so, oh, fuck, what's his name? Like YouTube people, like celebrities who say that, yeah, you know, all we have to do is stop thinking about trying to get laid and then our lives will be like better. Uh, we'll be able to get stuff done. I don't know, just very odd ideas that, that have a very long, so I guess they aren't odd, but they have a very long history and Foucault will come to show that all the way back to the Greeks. So now he, now he expand, expounds, expands upon number one. So a fear. So he begins this by uh, presenting a quote, or actually I'll skip the quote and give his kind of paraphrasing of it. So he says that this disease, which is shameful in itself, or the disease of pleasure, I should kind of clarify, is dangerous in that it leads to stagnation, harmful to society in that it goes, to, goes against the propagation of the species. And because it is in all respects the source of countless ills, it requires prompt treatment. One now, this is Foucault. One has to trouble recognizing in this text the obsessive worry that medicine and pedagogy nurtured on the subject of pure sexual expenditure, that unproductive and partnerless activity from the 18th century onward. So then Foucault continues, These solicited fears seems that seem to have been the naturalistic and scientific legacy in medical thought of the 19th century of a Christian tradition that consigned pleasure to the realm of death and evil which is how I think we might kind of traditionally understand it. Uh, think of the you know, Christian doctrine as being opposed to pleasure, whereas Foucault says, in fact, this, this passage comes from the Greek uh, Areteus. I don't know if I pronounced that right, A-R-E-T-A-E-U-S, um, who, who was essentially trying to condemn this idea of pleasure as being something that people could engage in without you know, repercussions. So, and another example Foucault provides is in the case of Soranus, who thought that sexual activity was in any case less favorable to health than virginity and plain abstinence. So what pleasure essentially came down to for the Greeks, and Foucault only pre presents it kind of um, quickly here, he says that for sure they would let you do it, but it comes at a price, and that price is the ultimate harm that you will do to yourself by giving yourself over to um, the kind of undetermined 
nature of pleasure of sexuality. So Foucault says, just kind of concluding off number one here, that that was a very ancient fear, right? This wasn't necessarily just a 17th, 18th century phenomenon. It, it had as far-reaching roots all the way back to the Greeks. So now we go into number two, which was an ideal of conduct. So he begins this by saying that we know how St. Francis of Sales exhorted people to conjugal virtue. He held out a mirror to married couples recommending the example of the elephant and the good morals it manifested with its mate, which has an indubitable affinity of what was going on with Aristotle at the time, or around the time when Aristotle, you know, in his ideal city, would, as Foucault writes, have sexual relations of a husband with another woman, or the wife with another man, with another man was considered dishonorable in any circumstances whatsoever. The sexual fidelity of a husband with respect to his legitimate wife was not required either by law or by custom. It was nevertheless a question that people raised in a form of austerity on which people, uh, on which some moralists set a high value. And it did have an impact. So although it wasn't mandated by the law or by authority, it still held a sort of cultural sway. And for that reason, I think that Foucault is prepared to say that it had like a stronger uh, imperative to it where, you know, it's one thing to break from the law because the law can often be biased and the law can often be detached from culture. But to break from the culture itself was to really mark your ostracism. Ostracization. Ostracism. Mm, okay. Alright, number three, a model of stigmatized, uh, or sorry, uh, the image of a stigmatized attitude. So he talks about this in relation to um, homosexual relations in Greek times, when he says, brings up the example of Socrates in the first speech in the Phaedrus, when he voices, as Foucault writes, uh, disapproval of the love that is given to soft boys, too delicate to be exposed to the sun as they are growing up, and all made up with rouge and decked out in ornaments. So of this, Foucault writes that it would be completely incorrect to interpret this as a condemnation of love for boys, or of what we generally refer to as homosexual relations. But at the same time, one cannot fail to see in it the effects of a strongly negative judgments concerning some possible aspects of relations between men, as well as a definitive aversion to anything that might denote a deliberate renunciation of the signs and privileges of the masculine role. So he continues, the domain of male loves may have been free in Greek, Greek, Greek antiquity, much more so at any rate than it has been in modern European societies. The fact remains fact remains that one sees the very early expression of intense negative reactions and of forms of stigmatization that will extend well into the future. And then finally, number four here, we have what he calls a model of abstention. Abstention, sorry. So he begins this section by giving us an image, kind of. He says, the virtuous hero who is able to turn aside from pleasure, as if from a temptation into which he knows not to fall, is a familiar figure in Christianity. As common as the idea that this renunciation can give access to a spiritual experience of truth and love that sexual, sexual activity excludes. But equally well known in pagan, pagan antiquity was this figure of those athletes of self-restraint who are sufficiently masters of themselves and their cravings to be able to renounce sexual pleasure. So these four things kind of point to 
I won't call it Genesis because who's who's to say how early back uh, they go really, but presents a kind of foray into an, an historical interpretation of sexual austerity. So of this, Foucault says that while that is all well and good to consider the ways in which of, there are there were these interdictions placed on uh, on bodies, on pleasure, on anything like that, he he's not so much interested in kind of tracing out each individual one and saying, okay, uh, we have, in the case of like homophobia, we can trace it to this, this thinker, this, this point, and then we can draw, you know, straight line down to today. Rather, what he says, what he calls for instead was a whole recentering of this, um, of this enterprise. So instead of looking for basic interdictions that were hidden or manifested in the demands of sexual austerity, it was necessary to locate the areas of experience and the forms in which sexual behavior was problematized, becoming an object of concern, an element for reflection, and a material for stylization, which is very much, you know, um, a continuation of his concern in the first volume, how sexuality was something that suddenly became an issue on the how, how people were conducting it. It became a scientific issue. To what extent can the doctor proclaim a degree of authority over sexuality what kind what modes of sexuality were considered proper and you know go on forever so we move into chapter three here and he says like in his, like he does in the second or sorry in the first volume that we need to you know consider some methodological uh we needed we need to do some methodological homework before we continue so when we consider this thing called the self Foucault is considering it specifically in terms of morality, to which he says that, you know, right off the bat, we're dealing with a very ambiguous term. So let's kind of lay it out here, what he means by morality, or the morality of the self. So he gives us a kind of straight-up definition, saying that, well, for, firstly, he says, uh, it's often just considered kind of set of values and rules of action that are recommended to individuals, whereas he says, okay, that's all well and good, but we can take this a little further. So morality for Foucault goes as follows. He says that it also refers to the real behavior of individuals in relation to the rules and values that are recommended to them. The word thus designates the manner in which they comply, more or less fully, with a standard of conduct, the manner in which they obey or resist an interdiction or prescription, the manner in which they respect or disregard a set of values. It's very, you know, Foucaultian here, where there's power, there might be resistance, uh, to what extent can we then measure? This is a really rich uh, Foucaultian doctrine, I find, because considering what he does in like discipline and punish, uh, and how the how people were essentially you know disciplined, he, he's allowing for a sort of space of resistance here that might otherwise have gone put been placed on the back burner. And he says that actually we can regard people to some extent as kind of subjects as individuals by either their willingness to comply or their willingness to refuse the system given to them. So he extends this idea suggesting that we can almost uh, perform a test like with like, like a litmus test uh, about the considering the degree to which people or groups vary from those prescriptive attitudes, right? And then through that we can measure their kind of uh, degree of morality or what he calls the morality of behaviors. So he gives us an example 
uh, a code of sexual prescriptions enjoining the two marital partners to practice a strict and symmetrical conjugal fidelity, always with a view to procreation. There will be many ways, even within such a rigid frame, to practice that austerity, many ways to be faithful. So these differences, Foucault says, can bear on several points worth considering. He continues, they concern what might be called the determination of the ethical substance, that is, the way in which the individual has to constitute this or that part of him or herself as the prime material of his moral conduct. Thus, one can relate the crucial aspects of the practice of fidelity to the strict observance of interdictions and obligations in the very acts one accomplishes. So that is one mode. The second uh, falls under the umbrella of what Foucault calls the forms of elaboration of ethical work that one performs on oneself, not only in order to bring one's conduct into compliance with a given rule, but to attempt to transform oneself into the ethical subject of one's behavior. So in either instance, what we get is an obsession or a working upon the self. So in short, for an action to be moral, it must not be reducible to an act or a series of acts conforming to a rule, a law, or a value. Of course, all moral action involves a relationship with the reality in which it is carried out and a relationship with the self. So he continues, A history of moral behaviors would study the extent to which actions of certain individuals or groups are consistent with the rules and values that are prescribed for them by various agencies. So in both cases, although certainly one is more geared towards the individual exerting themselves as such, they both, in a sense, point to this kind of formation of a degree of subjectivity. So in the one where the person's morality is measured by their, or the group's morality is measured by their ability to uh, engage with the rules of conduct or value prescribed to them, uh, which would be certainly in line with the discipline and punish kind of emergence of um, uh, subjectivity, or with the one that allowed the individual to turn their own gaze back onto themselves, to be their own person, to be their own individual, their own subjectivity, a kind of history and sexuality, the history of sexuality kind of uh, subjectivity, both point to some extent on this thing of the subject. So he says that here the emphasis is on the forms of relations with the self, on the methods and techniques by which he works them out, on the exercises by which he makes of himself an object to be known, and on the practices that enable him to transform his own mode of being. So he says that, of course, we can see this all the way back once again to the Greeks. So now it seems clear from a first approach, at least, that moral conceptions in Greek and Greco-Roman antiquity were much more oriented towards practices of the self and the question of ascesis than towards codifications of conducts and the strict definition of what is permitted and what is forbidden. So this, uh, this idea of the self was much more effective at maintaining a sort of ascetic ideal so that the person would be more interested in being an active agent in society rather than off doing sh the stuff that they would find pleasure in, which was much more useful than laying out all these kind of potential doctrines. So as Foucault says, the accent was placed then on the relationship with the self that enabled a person to keep from being carried away by the appetites and pleasures, to maintain a mastery and superiority over them, to keep his senses in a state of tranquility, to remain free from interior bondage to the passions, and to achieve a mode of being that could be de defined by the full enjoyment of oneself, 
or the perfect supremacy of oneself over oneself. So then kind of concluding off his introduction here, right? That was only the introduction. Uh, he says that he's going to regard this kind of emergence of subjectivity or the importance of subjectivity in the maintain maintenance of these kind of social codes to some extent uh, through four different avenues. He's going to look at the relation to one's body, the relation to one's wife, the relation to boys, and the relation to truth. So we to begin the actual book that he's... And he loves lists. Like for anyone that's read him, he always, you know, he's lists and he's lists within lists. It's yeah, it's overwhelming and can be can be difficult to follow at times. Uh, but this list I've just laid out, of course, he will break down into another list, beginning with the topic of aphrodisia. So he's in exploring this thing called aphrodisia. Uh, he's going to look at four different kind of key terms. So the first one is crisis which allows one to perceive the type of subjection that the practice of pleasures had to undergo in order to be morally valorized. Number two, the notion of incretia, of mastery that defines the attitude that was required with respect to oneself in order to make oneself into an ethical subject. And lastly, the notion of moderation, of sophrosynine. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but it's what we have. That characterized the ethical subject in his fulfillment. So the aphrodisia, he gives us a definition of it, and we'd probably know as uh, the contemporary word in English, at least being aphrodisiac. So for Foucault, he defines it as acts, gestures, and contexts that produce a certain form of pleasure, which is pretty, you know, exactly how we'd understand it today. So this really comes down to, in the Greeks, a sort of sexual pleasure, where as um, Foucault recognizes in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, uh, Aristotle didn't look down upon other kinds of pleasures, like the pleasures people could derive from the other or from the senses, like listening to nice music or looking at beautiful art or getting, you know, massaged. The, these types of things didn't point to a possible licentiousness that Aristotle would have uh, frowned upon or would have uh, chastised. Rather, it was it was sexual pleasure in itself, the, with the act of sex occurring that was considered to be uh, a threat to the individual's ability to be as such or to be an active agent. So in a rather enigmatic way, Foucault says that the concern for the Greeks was not so much then, uh, um, uh, was not so much a question around what desires or what acts or what pleasures, as he says, but rather uh, with what force is one transpo transported by the pleasures and desires. Okay, and this, I have trouble kind of understanding this because I'm too dense, uh, but, but it's tricky, but I'll try here. So he says that in relation to the concern of the Greeks, which weren't so much interested in laying out the different possibilities, uh, the concern then was the ontology to which this ethics of sexual behavior referred was not, at least not in, in its general form, an ontology of deficiency and desire, it was not that of a nature setting the standard for acts. It was an ontology of a force that linked together acts, pleasures, and desires. It was this dynamic relationship that constituted what might be called the texture of the ethical experience of the aphrodisia. So how I understand it in English terms, or in layman terms to make it as accessible as possible, is that they weren't, it's not as though the Greeks somehow tapped into a kind of transcendental doctrine that gave us the rules 
by which we should act in order to be proper humans. Rather, their approach was a little bit more complicated, looking at the intersection of acts, pleasures, and desires, and how these three together, which often pointed to the act of sex itself, it's there, uh, the interstice or the intersection of these three approaches that give us the aphrodisia. So then it comes down to what Foucault says is a quantitative type of act, where he says that what differentiates men from one another in this framework, for medicine and moral philosophy alike, is not so much the type of objects toward which they are oriented, nor the mode of sexual practice they prefer. Above all, it is the intensity of that practice. So this is really out of Aristotle, I will say mostly, um, because Aristotle, you know, considering uh, the attainment of virtue, doesn't totally disregard all things. In fact, there are moments, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, there are moments when he says it's almost okay to indulge in the licentious or the things that would point to promiscuity in order to understand them. Because if you just totally remove yourself from it, then it would be impossible to inoculate yourself from it. So it was almost important to engage with with it to some extent. So it is in that capacity, and this is how I understand this, or what Foucault is really identifying, that it wasn't so much the act itself that was bad, right? So it's not as though there was some kind of natural standard set up that um, prohibited some acts over others. Rather, the concern for at least Aristotle was how you controlled your engagement with that act. So there was nothing that was fully off limits, but it was about your ability or, you know, everything in moderation type approach. So the aphrodisia, beyond being something about that was, could be quantitative or how it was viewed upon in relation to the extent to which it was engaged with, um, also had embedded within it um, a kind of bifurcation between men and women, where man was designated the active role in the aphrodisiac, aphro, aphrodisiatic moment, made up a word, and the female the passive role, right? So what he says is that from this viewpoint and in this ethics, it can be said that the dividing line fell mainly between men and women for the simple reason that there was a strong differentiation differentiation between the world of men and that of women in many ancient societies. So it was this dichotomization and the kind of general logic of misogyny that made it so that keeping in mind the first condition that of uh, how the quantitative rule played a factor in um, played a part in determining one's uh, agentic possibilities so if they were to exceed what was expected of them then they would fall outside of their own subjective domain or if they were to take on too much of a passive role by the uh, you know, becoming woman to, to some extent, then they would also fall outside of themselves. So from there, we'll, we move into number, or I guess, chapter two of part one, uh, Croesus. So he begins this by saying, how does a man enjoy his pleasure as one ought? To what principle does he refer in order to moderate, limit, regulate that activity? What sort of validity might these principles have? That would enable a man to justify his having to obey them or in other words what is the mode of subjection that is implied in the moral problemati 
problematization of social conduct. So this all kind of comes down to what he calls the use, the or the uses of pleasure, pleasures, giving us the title of the volume here. So the aphrodisia then, like like we'd said, wasn't a matter of determining what was either good or bad, but how to what extent those good or bad things should be used, right? So how does the use of pleasure, how can it be used in such a way as to make it a kind of productive act for uh, society at large? So there are three strategies employed. They are need, timeliness, and status. So the strategy of need, uh, Foucault, and we have another list here, begins this, um, begins this kind of uh, strategy or begins this threshold as uh, through uh, Diogenes. Don't know if I pronounce that right. I suck with the Greek names. Uh, where he gives the example of Diogenes who needed to satisfy his sexual appetite uh, and he would do so in the marketplace. So the strategy of need worked to keep the kind of possibility of sexuality uh, at bay. So the strategy made possible an equilibrium in the dynamics of pleasure and desire. It kept this dynamics from running away, from becoming excessive, by setting the satisfaction of a need as its internal limit. And it prevented this natural force from revolting, from usurping a place that was not its own, because it provided only what, only for what was necessary to the body and was intended by nature and nothing more. Or in other words, because it was um, attached to kind of a real biological need, nothing, it was not necessary to go beyond that, right? So it kind of um, exercised the possibility of immoderation. So the str second strategy now is that of timeliness. So that was uh, focused on the what was considered the opportune time or the kairos. So these were the kinds of codes and conducts and placed on the on the body or on people that determine when in their lifespan they should be having sex. So for instance, doctors thought that it was not good to begin the practice of pleasures too young. They also thought that it could be harmful if one extended it to an advanced age. It had its season in life. In general, the latter was limited to a period characterized not only as the span during which procreation was possible, but also that in which the offspring would be healthy, well-formed, and robust. So he presents a rather funny passage out of Socrates, or when Socrates says that parents shall not have sexual intercourse with their children, nor children with their parents. And Foucault says that, or asks them, why is this? Uh, because the parents failed to respect the principle of the right time, mixing their seed unseasonably, since some, since one of them was necessarily much older than the other. For people to procreate when they were no longer in full vigor was always to beget badly. So of this, rather comically, I find, uh, Foucault says that Socrates does not say that incest is reprehensible only in the form of an inopportune action. But it is remarkable that the evil of incest is manifested in the same way and with the same consequences as the lack of regard for the proper time. So what was of real concern to Socrates here was not that incest was a bad thing, but that it would point to people having sex at the, at the inopportune time or when they shouldn't be in their lifespan, either too young or too old, which is, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. So now we're moving to the third one here, 
which was uh, or which is the strategy of status. So the art of making use of pleasures also had to be adapted to suit the user and his personal status. And again, he turns to Socrates for this, saying that Socrates, still according to Xenophon, asks the question if he had to educate two youths, one of whom would go on to lead an ordinary life and the other who would be destined to command, which of the two would he teach to control his passions so that they would not hinder him from doing what he would have to do? Pretty clearly, he'd want to um, control or kind of control the passions of the one destined for quote-unquote greatness or command or whatever because that was considered to be a prerogative or kind of um, criterion to hit or to satisfy in order to be a properly uh, agentic citizen in this world. So now in the favor of time, uh, we'll move into the third one, Encratia. So this is the kind of command that someone has over someone else, where Encratia is like power over power or over other kind of power, but it is one turned upon oneself. So it's control over oneself. I guess the in part is that um, selfness, where kratia uh, is uh, comes from kratos, so power, like democracy, comes from kratos, uh, power, demo people, or the public, or populations, or whatever, uh, having power. So in this case, as uh, Foucault makes clear, in uh, in Kratia is characterized more by an active form of self-mastery which enables one to resist or struggle and to achieve domination in the area of desires and pleasures. So in Kratia is a sort of prerequisite for the attainment of what is called um, uh, sophrosyne, which um, Foucault says happens because in Kratia is what is necessary for the control of oneself that is necessary before one can achieve um, a state of moderation or a state of virtue, which is why he, he doesn't put them together. He says that there's actually a process between Encratia and, and, Sof, and Sofron, and Sofronose. So in Encratia, in order for someone to properly engage with it, they have to see themselves as standing opposed to desires and pleasures because those are the threat. Those present the possibility of losing this degree of moderation or saffron or saffron where Foucault says that a man must take the position and role of the adversary with respect to desires and pleasures either according to the model of the fighting soldier or the model of the wrestler in a match so what this comes down to then is a constant battle with oneself with one's desires or one's pleasures uh, and Foucault says that, well, that might appear to be paradoxical because it's self against self. If you have a part of yourself stronger than another part of yourself, then you equally have a part weak in yourself that is given over to a stronger part. So this kind of internal agonism or this internal struggle is resolved by Plato by stating that there are, very, there are two very separate selves, so two parts of the soul. So there is a better part and a worse part, and that with regard to the victory or the defeat of oneself over oneself, the speaker places himself on the side of the first. 
quote and Foucault quotes him here, the expression self-control seems to want to indicate that in the soul of the man himself there is a better part and a worse part. Whenever what is by nature the better part is in control of the worse, that is expressed by saying that the man is self-controlled or master of himself. And this is a term of praise. When, on the other hand, the smaller is overpowered by the large, or sorry, the smaller and better part, because of poor upbringing or bad company, is overpowered by the larger and worse, this is made a reproach and called being defeated by oneself, and a man in that situation is called uncontrolled. So this agonistic, or kind of self-agonistic attitude, uh, came down to the heavy moderation of that larger, weaker part. So it was defined by the setting up of a solid and stable state of rule of the self over the self. The intensity of the desires and pleasures did not disappear, but the moderate subject controlled it very well, it well enough so as never to give way to violence. So exercise played a fundamental role in this kind of maintenance of self over self. Where the importance of exercise would not be neglected in the subsequent philosophical tradition, in fact, it was considerably amplified. New exercises were added, and procedures, objectives, and possible variants were defined. Their effectiveness was debated. Eschesis, in its different forms, training, meditation, tests of thinking, examination of conscience, control of representations eventually became a subject matter for teaching and constituted one of the basic instruments used in the direction of souls. So as we've sort of been alluding to here, uh, th this process of a kind of self-control was important for these Greeks, um, for, for people to be agents within a uh, city, within the city-state. So it's for that reason that it was something always to be strived for, because there was so much hinged upon one's status within the state. So it made use of the same exercises as those that molded the citizen, the master of himself and the master of others received the same training. It would not be long before this ascetics would begin to have an independent status, or at least a partial and relative autonomy. So before it actually did have that kind of relative autonomy, it did play a very important role for these Greeks in crafting or in molding citizens to be effective as such. So now we'll move into uh, chapter four here, titled Freedom and Truth. So what do these, what role does this, this the, do these things play? So freedom in the Greek uh, framework was established and preserved, um, or sorry, I should say, the freedom that needed establishing and preserving was that of the citizens of a collectivity, of course, collectivity. But it was also for each of them a certain form of relationship of the individual with himself. So we can always already see here that there is a kind of paradoxical uh, notion of freedom because as we've understood so far, uh, free, um, the relationship that one had to oneself in constituting themselves as a citizen, as a subject, as an individual was predicated on one's ability to limit themselves to some extent, to place barriers and control themselves. So that hardly seems like a kind of freedom to me, it seems like a, a form of control. So this is, you know, presenting, getting into the kind of irony here and how, how we can necessarily sift through that. So Foucault tells us that this individual freedom should not, however, be understood as the independence of a free will. Its polar opposite was not a natural determinism, nor was it the will of an all-powerful agency. It was an, an enslavement. 
the enslavement of oneself by oneself. To be free in relation to pleasures was to be free of their authority. It was not to be their slave. So that to then be a slave to the pleasures was to be, in Socrates' words, the, the worst kind of slave. And if the person, if the proper citizen did not have this amount of control over themselves, then the entire civilization, the entire city or whatever, could degrade into a, the states of organization that Plato, for instance, looked down upon in the Republic, like tyranny or, or monarchy or democracy or stuff like that. So he gives the example, or Foucault gives the example of the tyrant, for instance, who was who is incapable of mastering his own passions and was therefore always prone to abuse his power and to do violence to his subjects. And as you know, and it's important to clarify, and Foucault takes us through a little detour here, that as we've been discussing uh, virtue, as we've been discussing these ascetic ideals or moderation or the use of pleasure, it has always been in terms of a male-dominated system, right? So when we have been speaking about it, it's been in, in the terms of how men would engage with these acts. So for Foucault, women w weren't given that same kind of privilege. While they did have the opportunity to engage in a degree of incratia or, or sovereign, um, Foucault says that it was in a different capacity. So he says, as concerns the man, therefore, moderation and courage, and courage are a full and complete ruling virtue. As for the moderation or courage of the woman, they are serving virtues. In other words, the man stands both as a complete and finished model of these virtues and as the principle motivating their practice. And that is because, as we stated earlier, the um, values associated with women or with femininity are the ones that should be avoided because they often lead to immoderation or licentiousness. So to be an effective agent, right, the, the status that was denied to women demanded a degree of um, understanding of the logical or rational codes governing that time. Or as Foucault cites out of Aristotle, it can only occur what the, when the rational, or it can only occur by what the rational principle directs, or the logos. So then we're given the real kind of Foucault, Foucaultian Foucault here, where he says that one could not form oneself as an ethical subject in the use of pleasures without forming oneself at the same time as a subject of knowledge. So it demanded an understanding of the kind of logocentric logic that pervades, logocentric logic that pervades to this day in, in many ways, and how only by tapping into its kind of secret or not-so-secret ideals could one act actually engage properly with a degree of incratia. So what it came down to then was how uh, a notion of truth was established that people could then cling to or strive for through these ideals because they were kind of sold to the public in a, as a kind of package deal, it was only how people were able to gain knowledge of that system, exert a degree of authority. Of course, this was limited to citizen males uh, who, who could engage in a degree of authority to attain that status of, of truth or to be, belong to that domain. And once that occurred, then this, this state could be achieved. So then Foucault makes clear that this did not open up a possible kind of hermeneutics of desire 
or an analysis of what desire meant at that time, but rather it opened up what he calls an aesthetics of existence. So he continues, it took on the brilliance of a beauty that was revealed to those able to behold it or keep its memory present in mind. So those kind of citizens as I, as I just um, um, frame them. Now what is particularly important and how he kind of closes off this chapter is by reiterating that this isn't necessarily an entire or can't necessarily simply be measured by how one self engages with itself in order to affirm and amplify, intensify its being a self. Rather, what, what is of the most interest for, for Foucault is why is it that um, notions of self-renunciation and purity, uh, whose model was to be sought in virginity, perform this function of creating individuals, where it would seem at first glance to be kind of counterintuitive that such things would uh, constitute the individual. So keeping in mind the acting of a self upon a self through whatever codes of conduct are uh, put forth, like through the uh, the writings of Aristotle or Plato, keeping what, what interests Foucault and where he'll get into or what he's getting into here are the limits placed on the body, placed on what people can engage in in order to be, you know, real kind of individuals. And it's on that note that we'll move now into part two. And I think that it'll be on that note that we'll close this one off here, moving into part two or dietetics. Um, this one's going to take a while. My intent was to get through these three um, volumes that have been released and then do the fourth one because that would probably be pretty exciting. But I've yet to read it. It's only available in French. Like I have a copy of it, but and it's long. It's I think it's the longest of all of them. Maybe not this one, uh, but it's it's pretty long, and it'll take me a while to get through it. Because if I'm going to present it, I want it you know to be pretty accessible, and that'll involve me translating it. Uh, but yeah, other than that, I hope that this was helpful. I know I'm repetitive, and probably not the most exciting to listen to. In fact, I know that's the case. But you know, here you have it. There. Are, there are other videos you can check out that probably do a better job than me. But on that note, if you listened this far and enjoyed it, or have problems with it, you know how to leave it. Anyways.